Welcome to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We hope the following program will challenge you and encourage you in your faith journey. And it was just her form of protest. She was all done. She knocked all those shoes off of you know the aisles, and it looked like a bomb went off in Man. the shoe department at Walmart. And I just That's stood terrible. there and I went, this, this is not something that I've ever read about in a parenting book. I don't right. know what to do. Well, hopefully you haven't had a toddler meltdown in the store. Uh, our guest on Focus on the Family, Karis Kimmel-Murray, has, and she'll have some ideas on what to do in those situations and how to handle your kids, even when they're at their worst. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. Kids at their worst just doesn't happen, John. Not in my household. I've never, never had that experience. No. This is somebody else's hey, house. You know, today, we do. This is our heart. We want to equip you as a mom or a dad to do a better job. And I hope you have an appetite. I believe you have an appetite, like like we do, to want to do a better job in raising our kids, how to figure out uh, how to be a little more effective in our parenting. You know, Hebrews 12, 6, it says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And I think that's wonderful. That's a powerful reminder that we need to respond to our kids the way God responds to us. Mm -hmm. There is such a parallel in parenting between our relationship with God and then how we parent our children. Uh, Here at Focus, we want to be that daily resource for you in your parenting journey and to be here for you. So call us if you need us, and we'll have more information about that. And one great resource, Jim, that we have is Karis's book. It's the subject of our conversation today. It's called Grace-Based Discipline, How to Be at Your Best when your kids are at their worst. And this is a fantastic resource with age-appropriate advice for parenting that you can apply to your own family right today. Learn more about Karis and her book. Uh, just give us a call, 800, the letter A in the word family, or you can find details at focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. Karis, uh, welcome to Focus on the Family for the first time. Hi, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> We've had your mom and dad, Dr. Tim Kimmel on, and Darcy, your mom, and wonderful. I love their theme on grace-based parenting, and now you're following up and going a little deeper specifically with grace-based discipline. It's running in the family, isn't it? Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, our, our ministry, Family Matters, we have one channel, and that channel is grace, mm. and we just love to see um, hearts transformed by the power of God's grace, and then for that transformation to extend to all of our relationships, whether that's with our spouse. And I think it's wonderful. Yeah. I, mean, I really do. Yeah. Now, let's get to it. You believe parents have something to learn from firefighters. What can we learn in our parenting role from firefighters? Well, uh, actually, my brother is a firefighter with the Phoenix Fire Department. And so, you know, I I saw a lot of parallels um, with parenting because, honestly, our kids' behavior very often creates an emergency situation (laughs) Uh, in our homes, you know, maybe physically an emergency situation, but I mean more emotionally. And um, they just do stuff that just lights us up, lights a fire under us. And and so we need to function like first responders. We need to be able to be calm and approach those situations with our kids the way a firefighter approaches one. And, and something I didn't know but that my brother taught me is that uh, firefighters never run into a burning building. Mm-hmm. You would think that they do, and right. we see that on TV. So we just assume they you know, come out of the truck and they run straight in. And that's really not how it goes. I mean, obviously, they're, they are in a hurry. They're trying to be fast, but they're 
wearing all their gear, and they also don't always know exactly what they're coming into. So they're taking their time to approach the situation, to assess what's going on, to make sure that they don't expend themselves before they're even uh, in it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that way, once they're in the building, they can rescue who needs rescued, they can get the fire put out, they can respond instead of react. And the analogy there is for the parents to you know, walk briskly. Right. Don't run into right. a calamity. Right. Don't run into calamity. <laughs> walk briskly. Obviously, we have to respond quickly. And sometimes with our kids, that's split second. But I guess I mean, I'm using it as a, as a metaphor for yeah. how we have to keep our emotions in check. You, in fact, had a Walmart experience that brought you, I think, mm-hmm. to your knees a little. <laughs> what, you tell yours, I'll tell mine. Go ahead. Okay. What's your Walmart experience? <laughs> Well, my girls, again, were were younger. I think a lot of this stuff, you know, hits you hard on the front side of kind of the heavy lifting years of parenting, which is when they're, you you know, Is it because moms particularly are tired and, you know, maybe dads too, but moms, moms I think, carry that load. I mean, it's just a lot. Moms and dads are tired. And the developmentally where the kids are, they just need everything. (laughs) They need everything done for them. They're learning everything and they need correction in everything because that's the only way that they you know, form their personalities and their selves into, you know, contributing members of society. And they're definitely not that when they, when they're two-year-olds. And so uh, I think my youngest one was, she was still in like a, in a baby carrier and my older one was two and uh, we'd been sick for like five weeks and we were out of everything, you know, in our home. We had no groceries, we had no toilet paper, we had no nothing. So we just needed everything. So, um, you know, I, psyched myself up to go on this run with both of my kids by myself to Walmart. And I was spent because I'd been sick as well. And so I, I mean, I had them in the cart and my strategy was just to literally run through Walmart as fast as I could grab everything. I mean, it was like supermarket sweep. Remember that old yeah, we you know know that feeling. show and trying to just get it done. And, um, it would have been fine. I would have been successful except that my older one just really, really hated to be restrained. Um, I just, in a moment of weakness, I'm like, yeah, you can walk. You know, we're almost (laughs) done. She's two. Yeah, you can walk. (laughs) Which all the veteran moms and dads are hearing that going, yep, that's where you went wrong right there. So I'm running through, getting everything, and um, my flip-flop broke. (laughs) I live in Phoenix, Arizona, and um, we wear flip-flops pretty much year-round. My flip-flop had broken. Um, I was like, well, at least I'm at Walmart. I can go buy some shoes. And so I'm like, the last thing I'm going to do, grab some sandals. I'll buy the first pair that I find. I don't care how ugly they are. And then we'll check out and we'll go home. And so we were in the shoe department and she just, she was all done. And so she stood on one end of an aisle of shoes and she put her two little arms out to to each side and they were long enough that she could stand on one end of the of the aisle she could walk to the other side and knock all the boxes of shoes down on both sides on both sides just That's you quite know a mess. she's like walking <laughs> and it was just her form of protest she was all done she knocked all those shoes off of you know the aisles and it looked like a bomb went off in Man. the shoe department at Walmart and I just That's stood there terrible. and I went, this this is not something that I've ever read about in a parenting book. I don't right. know what to do. So what you did know? you do? Did you just go, uh, spill on aisle four, I got to leave? Well, it's one of those situations where you run through scenarios in your head and you think, like, how 
quickly could I run out of the store carrying these two kids like a football? You just know, abandon just like a the cart and get out. Make my husband go abort. Yeah, make my husband go later. The mission um, is over. And uh, I was like, well, I can't do that. And so, so you, you got know, through checkout. I, we we did get through checkout. That's a brave but, mom right there. <laughs> but uh, so yeah. when you look at it, let's move into the grace based discipline aspect of this again, because I think temperament plays a role in this uh, in terms of. Mm-hmm. Makeup of mom and dad. Yeah. Um, you know, some parents and some people are rule followers, mm-hmm. and that's very important to them. And others yeah. are maybe like your daughter knocking shoes off the yeah. aisle, but they're like 23. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not so much into the rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how does that play into the grace based approach of discipline and define it for us? Mm-hmm. And then we can get into all that. Well, grace based parenting and grace based discipline is simply treating our kids the way that God treats us. And we know that God disciplines us because it says so in the Bible. Um, And so we're just simply following the example that God sets with his children, because that's what we are. We're God's children. He's our parent. Now, I hear that. Describe it for me, how God disciplines us. So, well, God, I mean, God approaches his relationship with us. It's all because of grace. I mean, the only way we're able to have a relationship with a holy God is because of grace. And so when he disciplines us, he's doing it for our good. Hmm. It's not about him punishing us. There's a huge difference between punishment and discipline, and I go into that in my book. But Punishing is often out of vindictiveness or right, anger, right. Um, where, yeah, the grace-based approach is out of love for the out person. Out of love for the but person. But it doesn't, to the critic who's going to say, uh, that's just too soft. Yeah. You know, especially those dads that can be pretty heavy-handed. Mm-hmm. Not to stereotype, I get it, but Mm -hmm. oftentimes the temperament of the hard style is with the dad. I do it because I said to do it. Yeah. Well, we have to balance rules and relationships. You know, that that's really, really important. Um, And I think Josh McDowell said rules without relationship leads to rebellion. Mm. Yeah, and I've then, seen that. which great, is so, I, I it's a great quote. Often. Um, and uh, and my dad, Tim Kimmel, kind of has expanded on that, and he says, "But a relationship without rules leads to resentment." Mm-hmm. So we've got to have both. Yeah, if we don't good. have boundaries with our kids, they resent us because the, it doesn't prepare our kids for the life that they're going to face someday, for the world that they're going to face, if they don't understand how to respond to authority, how to follow rules, how to have um, you know self discipline in their life. So yeah. we're not we're not being gracious when we don't have rules and boundaries for our kids. And grace does not mean a lack of rules because that's not how God treats us. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. God wants true disciples, ones that think like Him, talk like Him, walk like Him, disciples that bring shalom to the chaos of this world. Pursue that path with the RVL Discipleship Series. Bible scholar Ray Vanderlaan will give you the tools to understand the Bible more deeply and inspire you to be a passionate follower of Christ. Watch the first episode at rvldiscipleship.com. Hey parents, Parent here. If you're searching for biblical and practical tips for your kid's specific age, you know, with all that extra time you have, well, you can stop. Focus on the Family has weekly agent stage emails that bring the tips to you. Each week, I get an email for my son that I can read on my phone and put directly into practice. No more sifting through junk on the internet. I can focus my time on being intentional. It's easy. Visit MyKidsAge.com, add your kid's age, and get to parenting better. That's MyKidsAge.com. 
Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. Karis, you mentioned a tactic in the book, which I found a little interesting. I want you to expand on it. You talk about putting things in the basket, hmm. kind of the, I think the bad behavior, the poor yeah. behavior, whatever it might be. What are you getting at to help parents understand to put those bad things in a basket? Yeah. Yeah. That's right in the intro of my book, because I feel like it's a first step mm-hmm. um, before you do anything else. And this goes back to what we were talking about with firefighters and being able to respond and not react. You've got to get your emotional reactions under control before you can really think, yeah. before you can analyze and respond. And so what the basket exercise is, is, you know, you imagine a basket or some kind of a container. And I like to, you know, visualize my kid, the things that they're doing that are annoying you or bothering you or that are wrong or that are hurting you, whatever it is, I imagine those behaviors almost like weights that are hanging off of my kids. Uh I see them as external, right? It's not Um, their heart. It's not their heart, right? Right. We're separating their behavior from their heart. And so the way you do this is you just imagine those behaviors hanging off your children like weights, and then you imagine yourself one by one, you know, name it. being untruthful or talking back or hitting their sister. You just imagine those things and you pull them off of your kid, you put them in a basket, and then you walk that basket into another room and put it up on a shelf. What does that benefit you, the parent? Well, the, the way that it benefits you is that it emotionally removes the threat mm-hmm. because we go into sort of a fight or flight response a lot of the time in situations with our kids, when our kids have knocked all the shoes off of the (laughs) aisle in Walmart. We're embarrassed, we're angry, we're annoyed. We just, it kind of lights us up. And that would be a reaction. And very often our own emotions and reactions are going to steer us towards what's best for us, not what's best for our kids. So So, true. So when you remove those, you can separate the behavior from their heart and really see them for yeah. who they are. And what I like is how you tie that then to the long view. This is probably for me, and I don't know about you, John, but for me, this is the aha in my parenting experience. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I finally got it. And that is to take the long view. And yeah. you talk about that in your book by thinking 10 years down the line with that behavior yeah. that they're yeah. expressing. Right. And you need, you need to absorb some of that. Right. You certainly deal with it and talk yeah. about it, and especially in a spiritual context. But it'll take some of the sting out of it if you think about, are they going to be doing this at 30? Yeah. Probably not. Yeah. And that's the key, isn't it? That's the key. Yeah. My my dad has a great line that he says, never drive in a thumbtack with a sledgehammer. He used to always say that to us when we were kids. And That's I'm like, good. I do not understand what this thing means, you know. But then once I had kids, I got it. Um, it's yeah. really easy to overreact to things that aren't that important or to yes. underreact to things that are really important. For the parents who have not caught that idea of grace, I guess there's two parts to this question. One is we can only dispense grace if we know grace. Yeah. So I speak to that. And then secondly... How do you know you're struggling, that you're mm-hmm. not blind, that you don't have a blind spot? Mm-hmm. You think you're grace-filled, mm-hmm. but you're actually more rules-oriented. Yeah. How do you take a quick self-assessment? So those are two big questions. Two big questions. So the, well, let me answer the first one first. I think a great biblical definition of grace is getting something that we desperately need but don't necessarily deserve. Right. And so, and God gives us that. I mean, Christ's death on the cross and his payment for our sin – 
we don't deserve it. We don't deserve to have a relationship with a holy God based on our own merits. Even if we're, you know, quote unquote, good people, we're not perfect. Um, And so we receive that grace from God because he said, I'm not going to judge you based on your sin. I am going to allow my son's righteousness to be um, laid over top of you, to be sufficient for you. And so that's that's biblical grace. And it doesn't mean that there are no rules and that God doesn't want us to obey him. Of course, he wants us to obey him. He's a good father. Um, But he doesn't want us to obey him for his sake. He wants us to obey him for our sake. And for our love for and, him. And for our, and out of love for him. He has so a response. number one is just so, feeling that grace yourself. Right. And making sure you know forgiveness yeah. and you understand it. And then yeah. you can give it to yeah. your kids right. in this case. And, and you didn't do anything to earn Christ's right. favor, or, you know, God's favor. Right. Um, you didn't do anything to earn his love. And you can't do anything to earn it. You mentioned in your great book, Grace-Based Discipline, you talk about the sushi menu. <laughs> now, not everybody eats sushi, so yeah. we got to talk about this. What is the sushi menu of discipline tactics? <laughs> well, I came around to calling it a sushi menu because if you ever have eaten at a sushi restaurant, you <laughs> you um, it's not like other restaurants where you kind of pick one main Thing, you know, menu comes. item, yeah. and that's what you get. With with sushi, it's just a couple of pieces, so you can order a lot of stuff to make a full meal. And so um, the analogy there is that with discipline tactics, very rarely are you going to just do one thing that's that you're always going to do in every situation that's always going to work. Mm-hmm. You need to have a lot of different strategies and tactics um, that you think through in advance. And so when you are facing something with your kids, you can order a little of this, you can do a little of that. You're going to take a multi-pronged approach to dealing with discipline issues with your yeah, kids. Yeah, that's good. Let's run through a few of those to give the listeners an idea. What are some of the Sushi menu options in okay. parenting tactics. In parenting <laughs> tactics, yes. So the the first one at the top of the list, and the reason it's there is because this is one of the things that I say: if you don't know what else to do, and if you if you can't do anything else for whatever reason in the moment, do this one thing, and I call this tag behavior, tagging behavior. And what this means is if your child does something, it simply means naming the thing that they're doing. Example. Example. So if your child says something that isn't true, you just say, what you just said was not true. We're truthful in our home. And that's tagging behavior. Or they, they're violent. They lash out and they smack you. And you can grab their little hand and say, we don't hit. That was hitting. Um, so you name it for what so it is. And it they get, what it, it, is. it conditions um, them to know that you know. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and here, I mean, this is a little bit of, you know... Um, it's almost like training an animal, and I'm not comparing our kids to animals, although sometimes. Sometimes there are <laughs> um, some applications. Right. Are you yeah. training but them what's right and what's wrong? Yeah, mm-hmm. but it's almost yeah. like clicker training. I don't know if you've ever yeah. seen a dog trainer do this. They give a click, and then they give a treat or a positive reinforcement sure. after that. But what they're doing is they're immediately marking the behavior that they want right. with a little, you know, right. and then they treat because it, it you can't even – pull the reinforcement out fast enough to really help the animal know that's exactly right. right. Um, and so you can do this with positive things that you want as well. You can say, oh, I love how you were so kind right there. Right. You know, but you can also do it with the negative behavior that you I don't want. I think it's important, too, to remind, um, to remember that, you know, in a yeah. moment, to, to do the positive things, too. Yeah, do and, the positive things, too. not just always the negative right. things. So, All right, tagging behavior. So I got tag it. behavior. Pardon. Yeah, and you, you can pardon 
you can choose to you've say... You've got that authority? Right, you do. You have that authority. But remember, you've tagged the behavior. Right. So you're not saying nothing. You're not just completely letting it go. You've tagged the behavior. You've named it. They know that you recognize it, right? Um, but you can choose in that moment to say, uh, you know, we're not going to do anything more right now. But, but I don't want to see that happen again, right? right? Um, you can choose to ignore it. Some types of behavior we actually reinforce mm -hmm. by responding to them. That's true. Things like whining or, um, you know, negative attention-seeking behaviors that our kids uh, do. If we say, don't do that, don't yell, don't, you know, we're, we're kind of pulling back on them and right. it's almost causing them to get more riled up and lean forward. Let's end here, and you touched on this as well, and that is age-appropriate kind of consequences. Mm -hmm. Parents, are, this is the biggest question parents have. You know, our kids are three and five. What are mm -hmm. the right kind of consequences to employ? But you break it down to toddlers, preschoolers, school-age children, tweens and teens. Just give us a couple of examples. So, um, you know, I, I talk in my book about a, a concept called developmental currency when it comes to choosing appropriate consequences for our kids. Um, for something to be an effective consequence, it has to cost something, right? right? It has to apply some kind of pain, and I don't just mean physical pain. That could be it, but I really mean more em emotional yeah. um, pain, something that is an ouch, right? right? That trains them that this is not what we want to have happen. But if it's going to cost them something, they have to pay for it in, in their currency, Right. something that they value. If we're asking them to give up something that they don't value, that's not going to be an effective consequence. So let's talk about toddlers, um, because I think a lot of your listeners have kids sure, in that yeah. age range. And I, a lot of the people I talk to, this is where they're struggling. A toddler's currency is having, is possessing something. And this just follows a developmental uh, you know, pattern. Their brains sure. are developing. Mine. Um, so mine, <laughs> right, exactly. You see you've, it happen. You've experienced that, it, I think. Yes. Both as a child and as a parent. Yes. <laughs> if they can see it, they assume that it belongs to them. Right. You know, if they see it and they want it, it's, they say, mine. Um, and so it doesn't help them. It does, it's not an effective consequence to say, you know, if you do that again, you're not going to be able to go to the park with Billy next Thursday. Right, they're not connecting they all those dots. They don't care about Billy. They don't know when next Thursday is. Yeah, right. And they, you know, they can't even conceive of going to the park next Thursday. Right. That's not effective. So what is effective? So what is effective is immediately removing maybe something in their possession or removing them from the situation that they're in. Uh -huh. We call this the Vulcan transport, right? You, <laughs> you're at this point, you're, be, you're bigger than your child. You can pick them up and move them quickly. Mm -hmm, right. And so... Teleport. Um, if, yeah, <laughs> teleport, right? So you kind of, if you're at home or if you're even, um, you know, out at a store, you can quickly kind of grab them real quick and you can move them to another place, whether it's back into their room, do it quickly. You're not going to, it doesn't hurt. You're not causing them any physical pain, but it's a jolt. And it just kind of takes them out of their head for a minute. And then you can say, we don't, whatever it is that they do, mm -hmm. you're going to sit here a minute. Right. And then we'll go back. And they go, ouch. So it's a correction. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that's toddlers. You got it's preschoolers toddlers. and school-aged yeah, children. Let's pick a tween. Let's children. do a tween one. And uh, yeah, because tweens is kind of the other, um, you know, hopefully they're not saying mine at this point, but they could. Well, be. they kind of are, in, <laughs> but in a, in more sophisticated language, right? And so, a tween's currency is belonging. Yeah. Right. Social. 
they want, yes, they're, they're trying to find their place in the world. It's really important to them to fit in. And so all the things that go along with that, whether it's, you know, fitting in means having the type of possessions that they think they need to have to fit in or being able to go the places that they want to go to fit in or do the things or being around their friends. Even if your child is more of an introvert, that is still their currency. So you need to, you know, if you're going to give them a consequence for something, you need to act on, um, on that currency. And so maybe that means they, you repossess their, their phone or devices for a certain period of time, or that means that you don't allow them to go somewhere that they've wanted to go. You have to really know your kid and know what makes them tick. What's important um, to them. What's important to them. But that belonging is really driving a lot of what they're doing. And that, that it's really good. And of course, if, if the toddler or the tween isn't hitting where you're at in your parenting spot, Mm -hmm. um, Karis's book, Grace-Based Discipline, will cover the other areas. Get a copy. I mean, here at Focus on the Family, we want to equip you. We want you to do the job as best as you can do. And it's hard to do it without a manual, honestly. But these are the great things that people have learned, Karis, her family. And I think um, this is one of those resources that can really help you. So uh, for a gift of any amount, help the ministry here focus to touch parents and to do the, uh, you know, help them do a better job in their parenting. And our way of saying thank you is to send you a copy of Grace-Based Discipline uh, as our way of saying thank you. Yeah, to donate and get your copy of Karis' book, our number is 800, the letter A in the word family, 800-232-6459, or stop by focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. Karis, as we end, I'm mindful of that parent that feels they just haven't done it well. Maybe they have kids that are 15, 16, 17, and they've been very rules-oriented. Um, what is something they can do uh, to be more hopeful What's an action? I know that's a very yeah. difficult question, but if they're in that desperate spot, you've counseled with parents yeah. that are there, yeah. what would you say to them? Well, that's what is amazing about grace, right? It can just cover over our mistakes. That's what it, it's its purpose is to, to cover a multitude of mistakes. Mm. And so if you realize that you've been um, legalistic and rules oriented and you feel like that's damaged your relationship with your kids, the first thing you do is just pray. Ask the Lord to point out these areas in your life. Ask to receive his grace for the ways that you have messed up and his forgiveness and accept forgiveness for yourself. We are so reluctant to accept God's forgiveness for ourselves and to forgive ourselves. We just continue to hang on to it and to beat ourselves over the head with our mistakes. And, uh, you know, the enemy wins when we do that. So he just wins. So and so accept that forgiveness. Uh, let that grace transform you. And then go, I mean, if you feel like your kids are old enough and you can talk specifically about this kind of stuff with them, and I would encourage you to, ask them to forgive you. Yeah. Ask your kids to forgive you. could be you. the best thing you've ever done. It could be the turning point in your relationship and the difference between you having a great deep relationship with your kids down the road or it just being strained. Yeah. It really can. Karis, thanks for being with us. Thanks. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for listening today to Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller inviting you back as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ. We're listening to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We'll take a quick break here and then return with another faith-building program for your family. Stay tuned. 
Celebrate a lifelong love this holiday season with a special edition print created just for you by award-winning artist Morgan Weisling. A Lasting Love honors the enduring love and generational impact of marriage, which captures a sweet moment between a couple leaving church set in the Pioneer West. See it and get your copy of A Lasting Love at FocusOnTheFamily.com slash special print. That's FocusOnTheFamily.com slash special print. If we are faithful, whether that's your ministry here at Focus on the Family, our listeners' ministries, whatever they are, whether they're formal or informal, my teaching at Holland Christian, if we are faithful to the Word of God, that Word will do exactly what God wants it to, and you can't stop it. In the New Testament, Jesus called us to go and make disciples, and as his followers, each of us is called to that mission of leading people to Christ and helping others grow in their faith. We're going to focus on that calling with our guest, Bible teacher Ray Vanderlaan. Thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. It's been such a privilege over the years to partner with Ray um, as he uses his unique gifts and talents that God has given him to teach the Bible and open our eyes up to things that are a little different from Western thinking. And I uh, had the privilege, Gene and I, of taking a trip to Israel with Ray. It was ah, just eye-opening. I mean, we don't understand it in the same context. And we're delighted to not only partner on That the World May Know over these last almost 28 years probably, Ray? 30. 30 years. Mm -hmm. But now launching something new, the RVL Discipleship uh, Project, which is going to be a wonderful and very compact, pithy 15-minute lesson that there's no excuse for you not to understand the Bible <laughs> better. And I know people are straining to get time. You know, this world is full of pressure at church and at work and family. But uh, Ray has done a wonderful job kind of uh, creating these 15-minute nuggets to help mm -hmm. you better understand the Bible. And we're delighted to be a part of it. We are, and uh, Ray has been a teacher at Holland Christian Schools for about 40 years, I guess, and <laughs> has poured out his gifts in this series, uh, the RVL Discipleship Study Series, which is released now digitally, and it's available only through Focus on the Family. Ray, welcome back. Thank you. It is great to be here again. Um, what do you hope to accomplish with this uh, new series? You know, there, this was something that we had talked about for a long time. There were people who were saying, you teach a class every day for a semester. You've got these 18-year-olds who seem to be fascinated with understanding the Bible in its context. Why can't we record and produce that as well? And I always hesitated for two reasons. One, what I had done before in publishing was what we did in Israel. And it was like, this is in a classroom. This is going to be a very different feel. The other reason I hesitated is class is sacred to me. Mm. There's a Jewish saying, study is worship. When you study and learn, what you're discovering is what God created and how he created it and how we ought to use it. So really, you're studying what God has done. Study is worship. And I was a little bit hesitant to bring these cameras into the classroom and risk taking those students out of this worship experience and making it a production. Yeah. But people kept saying, let's try it, let's try it, let's try it. So a couple of years ago, a group got together and we hired the necessary people and we recorded it. 
And I've been pleasantly thrilled, to be honest, because I think this is going to be a powerful way to take a look not only at discipleship in its Jewish setting, that's there, no doubt, but the foundations of discipleship all through Scripture. I've got much more time than what I would have had in Israel, so we can do 40 lessons and really build a good foundation. You know, Ray, you have that gift of teaching. The Scripture talks about some will have the gift of teaching. You've got it. When you look over 40 years of teaching high school students, I mean, it's just like us as older adults now to say, I'm really worried about that next generation. What do you see in young people today? You're the closest person I know to that generation of 18, 17, 16-year-olds. How would you summarize what you've seen over the last five or 10 years? I am guardedly optimistic. I think today's younger generation, I teach in a private Christian school, not that every one of those young men and women are committed to the Lord yet, but a lot of them are, and they're certainly familiar with it. And this is a group that is recognizing more and more that the only hope we have as a community of Jesus' disciples is what's in the Scripture. And I find students have a deep, deep interest in not only wanting to understand their Bibles, but they want to join the story, not Mm -hmm. just know about it, but become part of it. Guardedly optimistic, because I think it's really important in the Christian community at this time, focus on the family, a big part of that, obviously, that those young men and women are nurtured because they're still at the starting line. And I have this belief that we need to be increasingly intentional about helping these young men and women to think through what the Scripture says and what that looks like if you actually live it out. I agree, and I think, I think young people, the older I get, the more I appreciate the fact that the next generation is vitally important, mm-hmm. right? And for yeah. us to pour into them. And I think they are a generation of authenticity. They're, I think, compelled toward hard things. Mm-hmm. So being soft on the truth is not the way with this next mm-hmm. generation. Just right. let them have it. Let them know what the Lord expects and and then let them respond. But they're raring to go. Let me tell yeah. you a classroom story. Um, we were looking at the idea of God calling his people to be shalom bringers to chaos. And I thought, I'm going to challenge these kids. So I said to them, how many of you came in on 40th Street this morning when you came to school? About half of them came that. That was the south side. I said, how many of you drove by the nursing home? They all remembered that they had. Nobody paid any attention to it. I said, let me tell you something about that nursing home. Several weeks ago, I stopped there, went to the desk, and I said to the lady behind the desk, how many Alzheimer's people do you have here that haven't had a visitor in six months? Mm. She paused, looked at me kind of strange, and then she said, probably 15 Wow. And I said to the class, I said, do you guys realize that all of you who came in from the south side drove by 15 human beings that haven't seen another caring human being other than a good staff in six months? Wow. How could you drive by? Well, the next period, the buzzer rang and the secretary said, We've got four students from your class here at the nursing home. They claim you sent them there to visit. And those kids left school and went and said, okay, somebody's going to get a visit today from, well. And that's beautiful. That's awesome. It's, it, it is what 
the Lord it's, it's expects why and I wants believe us that Jesus chose disciples, some of whom are probably a lot younger than we think. Yeah. In fact, with the clash, you use, uh, I think, a frog analogy or illustration. Yeah. Describe that for us because it's, it's, it's really um, self-explanatory. Well, there are two, broadly speaking, there are two perspectives on how people search for truth and when they find what they believe to be truth, how they describe it. The Western approach, the children of the Greeks, look for truth abstractly. We take things out of their setting and we look at them in the laboratory. We do that when we take apart an engine or we do that with a Bible passage. We pull it out of the book and out of the chapter and even out of the verse and we disassemble it so that we can carefully look at all those parts. The Easterner prefers to search for truth or to express truth when he or she finds it in its original setting. So I use this example. Imagine a biology teacher who goes out to the pond behind the school and catches some frogs, brings them to the classroom, and then they invite me to come and look at their sample. My first question to them would be, is it a boy or a girl? And they'll answer, well, they know. And then my second question is, oh, it's a boy. Who's his girlfriend? <laughs> right, which and is And they what? look at me like, that's a crazy question. What difference does that make? My answer to them is, at what moment did it become impossible for you to know who his girlfriend is? And their answer is the moment we took him out of the pond. If you left that frog in the pond, you might have been able to say, which of those young ladies is he sweet on <laughs> in the pond? When you took him out of the pond, you will never know that. On the other hand, if you studied the frog in the pond, you'll never know how many chambers he has in his heart. So we come from a Western world where we tend to study the Bible abstractly. We pull ideas out of the Old Testament or the New Testament. We pull them out of the book, out of the chapter, and we disassemble them and try and study all the pieces. What we discover, in my opinion, is truth. The Bible never misleads. It's God's truth. But there are some things we will never know the moment we did that. Mm. The Easterner wants to leave the thing in its context, study it where it was, the way it happened. So, for example, when a Western Christian studies a story from the Hebrew Bible, they want to come up with a checklist and say, what are the various teachings that we can find in this story? The Easterner says, I want to know the story. Just tell me the story. Kind of the big story. The big story. So notice when they ask Jesus profound questions, he doesn't give them a bullet list. Right. He doesn't write a declaration of independence, point one, two, three, four. What Jesus does is tell a story. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. Your marriage can be redeemed, even if the fights seem constant, even if there's been an affair, even if you haven't felt close in years. No matter how deep the wounds are, you can take a step toward healing them with a Hope Restored Marriage Intensive. Our biblically-based counseling will help you find the root of your problems and face challenges together. We'll talk with you, pray with you, and help you find out which program will work best. Call us at 1-866-875-2915. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. 
Ray, let's go to the Old Testament uh, for another example. I think this is in Genesis 21 where Abraham plants a tamarisk tree. And I remember being in Israel with you. You would always point out when something seems odd, stop and really dig into that. So he plants a tree. Most of us reading that will go right by it. It's interesting he plants a tree. What's next? <laughs> there's, there's a question I learned in the Jewish context. When you read scripture and there's something in a passage that doesn't seem central to the meaning of the passage, just a little detail, but isn't described why that's there. Always ask the question, why do I need to know that? Mm-hmm. God never puts anything in his word that's unnecessary or unimportant. So the story goes like this. God said, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. But Abraham didn't even own enough ground to have a place to be buried or for his wife to be buried when they would pass away before too long. But he doesn't say anything. He doesn't say thank you. He doesn't say when do I get that land that you promised. He simply gets up and goes to Beersheba, which raises another question we could address another time. And he plants a tamarisk tree. Now, to a Westerner, what difference does it make what kind of a tree it was? What if it's an olive tree or, a, or an arara tree? Why a tamarisk tree? And second, why does he plant the tree? doesn't say. That's the end of that story and moves to something totally different. <laughs> the answer is, in that cultural land of desert where Abram lived right at the edge of that desert, there aren't many shade trees. But there are some tamarisk trees, which one of the few shade trees. They have high salt content in their leaves, so they absorb moisture, meaning the shade is even a little cooler than it would be under another tree. But they're very, very slow growing, and there's not enough rainfall in the area for that tree to to do well or to survive unless you give it some help. So why would you put that much work into a tamarisk tree? in that area and the answer is you want the shade there's no fruit on it that you're going to get so you put the tree there for shade but it's very slow growing meaning when you plant it you'll never enjoy it you'll never live long enough to enjoy the shade of that tree you are planting that tree for the next generation to enjoy yes (laughs) maintaining it so when god said i'm going to give you this land abram in picture in story got up and said let me show you how much i trust you I'm going to go plant a tree Hmm. that I will never enjoy, but I believe my children will or my grandchildren will because you promised. And so he put a tamarisk tree there near Beersheba. And again, it's such an illustration of the deeper meaning of what God's saying. That's something for us today to understand that we plant that tree for our kids. Yes, amen. I like that a lot. I will say, rather than say deeper meaning, I like to say additional meaning. Okay. That's because fair. which meaning is deeper or shallower, I'm not sure I can judge. But I don't want people to think, unless you study the culture, you miss the meaning. When you study the culture, you will probably come up with additional insights. Yeah, that's, that's good. the brilliance mm-hmm. of the idea. New Testament, Matthew 7, Jesus gave uh, a lot of parables, but he, in this one, it's the parable of the wise and the foolish builders. You think in the West we miss this one. What are we missing? Well, that's an interesting question. I I don't know about missing, but I think there's a profound idea in there that if you've never been to the Middle East, you might not notice. There's two kinds of sand mentioned in Scripture. There's sand, 
which to a Jew would be the sand you find in the desert. They lived in the desert. They didn't live on the seashore. But once in a while, the Bible talks about the sand of the seashore. They didn't live on the seashore for the most part. So when it mentions that, there's some specific reason. So when Jesus tells the parable, he tells the story of a man who builds his house, not on the sand of the seashore, but on the sand. So where's the man building? He's in the desert. In the desert are canyons. It doesn't rain much in the desert, but it rains up in the mountains. The water comes rushing down those mountains into those canyons, wears away at the rock of the canyons, leaving behind very fine silica sand. So Jesus is saying this man is building his house in a flood canyon. Now this year will probably be safe. Maybe this decade will probably be safe. But sooner or later, there's going to be a flood in that canyon, and it's going to wash it away. So the sand, I think, that Jesus' audience would have had in mind is the sand in a flood canyon, not the sand on a seashore. My father was a builder, and he used to say, I never understood that parable because I'd rather build on sand than on clay. Clay is hard to compact. It's hard to work with. you got a problem with water, always holding water. I'd rather build on sand. You can compact it. It drains well. Well, the point Jesus had is if you don't do what he asks you to do, you are building your house in a place that sooner or later, destruction. Yeah, that destruction Mm. often, Ray, comes to us through devastation of some sort, unexpected situations, and you had that. Um, Mm. How did that apply to a personal moment in your own life? And it's very much uh, wrapped up, in a way, with the projects we've done together, Focus on the Family and That the World May Know. It was four days before we were to leave in October of 1993 to go and begin the filming of the project. And my mother, unfortunately, was killed in a car accident. Uh, I was very close to my mom. My mom was a teacher. I was a teacher. I wanted to be a teacher like her. And it was just devastating, and that close to the filming, it felt like God was pulling the plug. But God had something there, too. As devastating as that loss was, we decided to follow through and let God provide. And the film group turned out to be this incredibly supportive prayer group that prayed me through 29 days of filming in Israel. Hmm. Uh, Many times I would fall apart and couldn't finish what I was teaching, and they would gather around and pray. And So there was an intensity of passion to that production that I don't think that's why my mother was killed, but it did result from that tragedy that happened, that there was a passion in my soul that I wanted to faithfully put this before God to say, God, I wanna, I'm going to trust you on this one. Mm. Ray, when we look at those situations, those are the complex issues that many of us just don't understand why things happen. Mm-hmm. You know, the infamous one is, if God is a good God, why do, why do little babies die, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's one of the most common concerns of nonbelievers. And in that context, um, this is what it's all about, right? This is what Jesus is talking to us about is how to not just get by in life, and, mm-hmm. but to build your life mm-hmm. in such a way upon him that when these floods come, when these life's moments arrive, and every human being is going to experience some tragedy, right. that you're rooted and you can continue to move forward. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I, I think it really is. Uh, there, there's something that I teach to my high school classes 
that comes out of that idea. We may never know. Some people think when you get to heaven, well, we'll know why this awful thing happened. Maybe. Maybe God will reveal it. Maybe he won't. Uh, that will be his call. But um, we may never know why painful things happen. But we can ask this question. Did God use this as a moment of grace also? Was it pain with purpose? And it strikes me, and this was something my wife shared with me many years ago, childbirth is pain with purpose. It's a pain a mother is willing to pass through because the purpose of that pain, the end result of that pain, is significant. And I've found in life that the painful moments we go through, while I may not understand it, may not even want to be there at all, in fact, may be very frustrated that I am even there, often on the other end, God teaches me something that comes out of that pain. So the pain did have a purpose. Yeah. And it's so important to understand that. And that's the beginning of wisdom, you know, that you can capture that. Um, I want to play a clip for you from someone I think you know, and we'll describe it for the viewers and the listeners in just a minute. I took two classes with Ray. My sophomore year of high school was Life of Jesus, Mm -hmm. and that was a semester. And uh, he just made the Bible and the life of Jesus just come to life. He's just a gifted teacher. He is. Unbelievable storyteller. And uh, he brought so much truth out of the scriptures that I never realized or knew were there, even growing up in a home where we were around the Bible all the time. And then my senior year, I took a course called Discipleship, where he talked about it's one thing to be a fan of Jesus. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to be a fully devoted follower. And he talked about the definition of being a disciple is to be a fully devoted follower. Mm -hmm. And he challenged us to understand that that meant following Jesus, even if it cost you something. So if culture goes this way and Jesus went this way, if you're a disciple, you got to go this way, Mm -hmm. even if it costs you something. And so I, I felt from his challenging teachings in high school and through some of the experiences I've had in sports, I just drove a stake in the ground late in high school that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a fully devoted follower, even if it costs me something. And uh, I'm going to trust him and build my life on, on his truth. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, through those ups and downs and the roller coaster of life, um, it, it, it makes all the difference. Right. And so um, Ray's teaching was a, was a foundational impact on my life. <laughs> and that was one of your former <laughs> high school students, Kirk I Cousins, well. who's the quarterback for the well. Minnesota Vikings now. You know, I, I get teary-eyed when I hear this because, well, several things. One, he was such a great kid. He was a great athlete, popular kid. Other people really liked him, but he took his faith seriously as a high school student. I've had a lot of students in my 44 years of teaching. There aren't many who put it into practice the way Kirk Cousins did. And not just professionally, that I mean confessionally, that he was willing to say, I love Jesus and I believe in Jesus publicly, but to live it, yeah. to actually practice what he believed. And I can tell you that having followed him now that he's moved out of high school and out of college and plays at the professional level, his life still reflects that passion that if Jesus says, go this way, and the culture says, no, go this way, you go the Jesus way, because that's Kirk Cousins to the core. Right. Fantastic young man. Uh, Well, not as young as he he was when I had him in class, but um, great kid. Yeah, and what's what's wonderful is just he lives it. And you were obviously a mentor to him and somebody. You still connect before games, right, on Saturdays or something? (laughs) You phone each other. Friday nights. 
Friday nights the the <laughs> time you get together. But in that context, uh, some people may not have seen the Netflix series on that. But uh-huh. he, along with three or four other quarterbacks, were followed through a season. I think last year's season, mm-hmm. and his faith comes out very graciously mm-hmm. in all of that. So he's got it, and mm-hmm. he's a, a great witness for the Lord in Indeed. that context. Amen. That must make you feel good. You know, it it does. It's it's an incredible thing when students come back and they're appreciative and thankful, uh, whether they're famous like Kirk Cousins or they're simply young men or women that live in the local town and want to come back and say, thank you for what you did. But what strikes me in that, when I was younger, I think sometimes I thought a little bit of that was due to my good teaching efforts. <laughs> That's natural. Whether, whether my gifts <laughs> or the hard work. And I did work hard at it. I've learned that's not the case. I've learned it's what God does to what we do. Isaiah says, as the rain and the snow fall from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, causing it to bud and blossom, so it is with my word. It shall never return to me empty, but always accomplish the purpose. If we are faithful, whether that's your ministry here at Focus on the Family, our listeners' ministries, whatever they are, whether they're formal or informal, my teaching at Holland Christian, if we are faithful to the Word of God, that Word will do exactly what God wants it to, and you can't stop it. So I don't take a whole lot of credit for what happened with Kirk Cousins. I think God went to work. I faithfully tried to pass on the Word of God, and God took it from there. Well, there's something in inspiring people to follow. And you do that so well, yeah. better than anybody I know, Ray, honestly. Mm-hmm. You Bless inspire you. the human heart to seek God. Um, what else can you do? Thank you. Right? And that's why we're so encouraged to partner with you on this new series, the RVL Discipleship Series. And I think people, if you want that experience that Kirk Cousins had in the class, this is that experience. And you can sign up for that and get going with it. Gene and I are going to do it for our neighborhood. We're going to Hmm. host a a home study and invite the neighbors to come. So that's another thing you can do. Uh, The content will not let you down. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I know it, and we're embracing it in that way. So Ray, again, thank you so much for the time to talk about this and the insights. There's so many more, the fig tree and uh, being in green pastures, which really weren't that green back in the day, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's so much good stuff in here that we all need to know and to kind of rethink our Western perspective hmm. and maybe put a little more of Jesus's context on things. <laughs> and uh, it's good to have you. Thank you Thank for being you. with us. I'm honored to partner with you folks. Mm-hmm. Well, be sure you check out more about the RVL Discipleship Series. Again, it's digital only. It's exclusively through Focus on the Family. And we've got all the details at focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast or call 800, the letter A in the word family. And that clip you heard from Kirk Cousins is an upcoming broadcast. Uh, You'll hear that in a few weeks, so be sure to look for that in the schedule. Well, on behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller inviting you back as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ. Is your marriage holding on by a thread? For deep hurt, you need deep healing that only comes from the Lord. And you'll find it at a Focus on the Family Hope Restored Intensive in Michigan. 
Our licensed Christian counselors will help you and your spouse get to the root of your issues in just three to five days. And it works. 80% of the couples are still married two years after attending. Learn more at HopeRestored.com and talk with a trusted advisor. That's HopeRestored.com.